Hello everybody, welcome back to the Religious Studies Project and to the first episode of Discourse for this, our incredibly 10th season um, at the Religious Studies Project. Uh, this year we're having one episode right at the end of each month. Um, normally the discussion is going to in some way revolve around the theme um, for those months' episodes. This month, This month's theme was Journeys and um, well, we're about to have a journey into the very heart of American <laughs> politics right now. Um, but first, let me pass over to our guests to introduce themselves. Um, first, I'm going to pass over to Megan. Oh, hi. I'm Megan Goodwin. I am the Program Director for Sacred Rights. That's W-R-I-T-E-S, which is a loose-funded project that promotes public scholarship on religion at Northeastern University. I'm also the author of Abusing Religion, which is a, a book that talks about a number of things that are relevant to Q. So thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Let's uh, hear from Savannah next. Hi, I'm Savannah Finver. I am currently a doctoral student at Ohio State University um, in comparative studies. My research has primarily focused on uh, religion and politics and law, uh, particularly in the United States. Um, and my master's thesis focused a lot on um, the satanic panic. So uh, talking about Q is going to be very interesting. And thank you very much for having me. Again, you're welcome. And finally, Jonathan. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Jonathan O'Donnell. I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for American Studies at University College Dublin and the author of Passing Orders, a forthcoming book uh, this November on demonology and its intersections with American systems of social prejudice. And if you haven't picked up already, we're talking about QAnon today. Mm -hmm. um, very timely and uh, I think we're all quite excited to be to be doing this but we're going to start with um, Savannah is going to give us a quick uh, overview and introduction if by some uh, chance you haven't heard of this QAnon thing. Savannah take it away. Sure so basically QAnon is a is a group um, mostly internet-based, that started uh, primarily online on these anonymous uh, uh, posting websites. So it started out on 4chan, 4chan went down, it moved to 8chan, and now is on a website called 8kun. And the primary function of these websites is for people to be able to post content anonymously. Um, there was a user, uh, you know, going by the name of Q, who was posting basically these kinds of riddles on these websites, um, kind of uh, riddles and hints, um, mostly about a conspiracy of deep state, um, uh, how should we say, uh, collusion, um, and <laughs> um, the members of, the, of this deep state group um, are uh, said to be uh, performing satanic ritual murders of ch young children um, and, uh, you know, drinking their blood, which supposedly has some kind of magical properties. And of course, uh, recently with the rising hashtag of Save the Children, um, we've seen uh, accusations of, of pedophilia as well. Um, 
And Q is kind of a nebulous group. It's often seen as a far-right conspiracy, but what I have gathered in my research is that it's it's it doesn't line up particularly with one extreme of the political spectrum or another. Um, it has far more to do. It's far more a pro-Trump group. And since Trump is not, President Trump is not a uh, typical Republican or typical conservative, um, this group has been attracting uh, folks from all over um, the political and religious spectrum. Um, have I left anything substantial out that I should get into? Just the pizza. Oh, the Pizzagate. So yes, so QAnon, you may, you probably, if you have heard of this, you've heard, uh, this group, you've heard about it through the Pizzagate um, issue where there was, um, the, cl- the claim was that these satanic ritual killings and, and uh, pedophilia was going on inside of a, uh, of a pizza shop. Um, and so there was a gentleman uh, who went <laughs> to investigate this pizza, pizza shop. And of course, c- he could not turn up any evidence whatsoever um, of any kind of deep state collusion, of any kind of uh, ritual murder, of any kind of um, you know pedophilia or anything like that. Um, but of course, uh, the lack of evidence was not the end of Q. And as we have seen, um, the the conspiracy theories have just continued to grow and to envelope more issues um, as our current. Uh, social and cultural climate has changed. So it's definitely um, encapsulated, uh, you know, COVID-19 and mask issues and, you know, the hashtag, the pandemic video. And so we can get into, into all of that later in our discussion. The lack of evidence was also not enough to keep him from not shooting into the pizza place. So, right. Yes, he did. He did go in armed. Yes. Um, for those of us who, you know, have a background in looking at new religions, uh, especially or the broader sort of history of twentieth-century religion, at least these um, ideas of uh, of pedophile Satanist rings um, are quite familiar. <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, Megan, do you want to take this first? Oh golly, sure. Uh- <laughs> So we said at the top that we were all excited to be talking about this, and I'm just so annoyed. I'm so annoyed that we have to talk about this stupid nonsense. But of course, it's you know it's shaping the political landscape as it has been. You're pointing out, David, for oh lord, forty years now. So the short version is that uh, America's satanic panic gets kicked off in the 1980s, largely around anxieties that folks caring for children outside a traditional nuclear family are subjecting them to satanic rituals for unclear but very scary reasons connected possibly to a scheme of global domination aspirations. So we see it early in the 1980s 
with anxieties around childcare facilities, most famously the McMartin Preschool, where the folks who are running the preschool are subjected to the longest and most expensive criminal trial in U.S. history that after a decade turned up no evidence of sexual abuse or uh, ritual activity. Later in the 1980s and then into the early 1990s, we see folks being diagnosed as uh, ritual abuse survivors by a comparatively small group of therapists, social workers who have been trained to look for ritual abuse. You've got comparatively a handful of folks diagnosing hundreds and hundreds of people, women, mostly middle-class white women, mostly as survivors of ritual abuse. So they're recovering, and you should hear the scare quotes around that, memories about having been subjected to sexual abuse as children, either by their parents or by community members. The tricky thing here is, obviously, we know sexual abuse of children is incredibly common, but also a almost decade-long million-dollar investigation by the FBI turned up no evidence that any sort of satanic conspiracy was operating in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s. So it is possible that the women who are recovering these memories or being encouraged to recover these memories experienced something, but it is very unlikely to be connected with any sort of global satanic conspiracy uh, and and deeply unlikely to be connected to John Podesta's uh, polenta recipe. So, Something that's quite interesting is that the the uh, the classic SRA scare in the eighties and nineties was also transatlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was the McMartin trial in the states, but the Orkney trial was happening at the same mm-hmm. time, and and it similarly didn't produce any lasting convictions. But what strikes me as as a another interesting parallel is that in both cases, whilst it's clearly we now talk about the satanic ritual abuse scare as a, a classic kind of case of conspiracy thinking. But at the time, it was something that was, you know, in law and police officers were being trained and uh, there were uh, there were there were special seminars for lawyers and policymakers where you know people with extremely dubious credentials, often coming from a, a highly evangelical uh, background, were teaching police officers how to spot you know the evidence of these satanic religions which simply didn't exist in the form that they were imagining um and here we we again have something which uh, straddles a sort of um the kind of popular conspiracy stuff that we saw you know uh, the stuff that the x-files was talking about but also involves people in government Mm. Well, that's that's a really important point. I think folks assume that satanic panic or satanic ritual abuse concerns were exclusively religious or limited to religious communities, but they they weren't. This was incredibly mainstream. The the chapters that I work on satanic panic in my book look at the ways that ostensibly secular organizations and institutions like social work, like law enforcement, like uh, the courts are adopting a really religious script in these, again, supposedly secular spaces. And the the piece about the evidence is important too, specifically because I, I can't speak to the Orkney case, but with the American cases, people were convicted for 
honestly, collectively centuries on specious, if not no evidence. Some of these folks are just now getting out of jail. Some of them are still serving terms. And we still have book uh, laws on the books in several states specifically related to satanic ritual abuse, despite the fact that the phenomenon has been pretty thoroughly debunked outside conservative evangelical circles. There's an interesting, there's historical links. A lot of the same people who were um, who were involved in in the police, the policing of satanic ritual abuse during the nineties were also involved in the recent, we had a, we had a little satanic ritual abuse scare in 2014, 2015 around based around Hampstead. And it was there. It's exactly the same people. And those, those people now are also involved in the, you know, the save the children marches that were happening um, in the U S and in Britain uh, just just this weekend past, I think. Mm. Um, Savannah, any any thoughts there on on uh, connections with satanic ritual abuse? Um, sure. I mean, uh, it's interesting that we're seeing, you know, as Megan already pointed out, um, that we're seeing kind of a repeat of this rhetoric kind of bouncing up again. I think what's really interesting to point out is that the satanic panic uh, – popped up at the end of the, you know, 1960, 1970 countercultural movements here in the United States. And here now, again, worldwide, globally, we're having another uh, cultural crisis in terms of COVID-19. It's changed the way that we've, you know, looked at, uh, looked at things. It's changed the way that we're, we're behaving in our everyday life. And I think, um, Although I am disappointed that we are having to address this again in some ways, I think it's not altogether surprising that this same discourse, I think, is popping up now uh, around this ritual satanic abuse that um, I think I think this is a time of great fear um, and and unknowns. So I think it's, uh, again, not altogether surprising that we're we're seeing a revival of this kind of rhetoric. What is concerning in some regards is that now it's focused more on um, political actors and political parties. Um, And so uh, we're seeing, in some cases, uh, evidence of of violence and, um, uh, you know, uh, facing towards uh, you know, political actors and particularly the the Democratic Party uh, as uh, Trump's chosen nemesis. So, yeah, I mean, the political aspect isn't new either. We get Jesse Helms entering an entire transcript of, oh, Lord, I think it was the 2020 episode uh, on satanic ritual abuse into the congressional record before he gets the entire United States Senate to agree not to fund the forces of darkness like that. That is in the, the transcripts. It's so trippy. But it also, I think, speaks to this weird space of the devil slash Satanism slash satanic panic occupying a weirdly secular space. Like none of the members of Q are doing like a a Ku Klux Klan thing of saying we all need to be good white Protestant men, but you do have this united force against like evil and the forces of darkness that works in a very religious framework, but doesn't espouse any one particular like religious identity. I know Jonathan's kind of our, our demonology specialist. I'm wondering if he could maybe speak to that. 
Yeah, I was going to bring him in, especially um, as we get into the more sort of, um, what's the word, sort of a spiritual warfare aspects mm. of it, which have are very interesting to me. Uh, okay, well, I can talk about that. Um, I mean, I, I guess that's a kind of opening point to go back to a kind of point that, that Megan made, um, is that the idea of satanic ritual abuse like never went away from a lot of conservative evangelical circles. Mm. Um, it's been a, a pretty, if not prominent, like at least present aspect in, in a lot of the conservative evangelical discourse ever since. Um, and there's a large overlap between Q um, and general discourse of the spiritual warfare. Mm. Uh, for those of you, for people who don't know what spiritual warfare is, uh, spiritual warfare is a framework that develops mostly in Pentecostal and charismatic evangelical subcultures, uh, that the idea that demons are active malevolent forces in both history and contemporary society, uh, and they can be fought primarily through uh, kind of militant forms of prayer, uh, some weaponized prayer structures, uh, but also through, um, for some, through kind of direct political activism, through uh, taking control of specific regional or local bodies and purging them of the forces of darkness, essentially. Um, but there's a general big overlap between um, that kind of framework and Q, both kind of in terms of specific figures, uh, like one of the prominent kind of Q evangelists, I guess you could call them, uh, is David Hayes, uh, more popularly known as Praying Medic, um, who was very, very involved in spiritual warfare communities. Uh, Mark Taylor, who wrote The Trump Prophecy, uh, which was uh, developed into a movie by Liberty University, uh, has kind of pivoted to Q-related discourses kind of in the years since. Um, only this year, uh, several actual Q drops have referenced uh, Q drops being the statements that Q puts out on anonymous forums, uh, referencing things like the full armor of God, uh, reference particularly derived from Ephesians, like phrases that are very, very prominent within spiritual warfare communities. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of, that's the general overlap that you'll find there. I wanted to pick up on something you said there about uh, things coalescing around the Q narrative, because this is something that I find very interesting. I My doctoral research was on um, conspiracy theories uh, in the lead up to 2012. It wasn't specifically about 2012, but it was about these communities that were kind of uh, post-New Age. And I noticed this pattern of these, every so often this millennial narrative would appear that everything kind of coalesced around. And even though it never, like 2012, for instance, or, you know, the New Age in its original kind of uh, uh, late 50s, early 60s form, um, they never really had a firm central idea. It was more of a, it was more of just an idea that was, loose enough that you could attach almost anything to it and things got drawn in and it became more complex but also slightly more solid and then at a certain point it kind of climaxes whether through a sort of failure to 
if it, you know, if it's specific enough, like 2012, it ended very quickly, whereas in New Age, it kind of dissipated out and became more sort of post-millennial. But I think we're seeing another example of this here that, you know, there there are these increasingly kind of evangelical terms and ideas appearing in the Q material, but there's also, um, you know, stuff about dolphins and crystals and, you know, the sort of stuff that we would normally associate with the more sort of left-leaning millennial uh, narratives. And, and I, I think that's another example of how, you know, understanding this longer history of, of 20th century religion sheds light on something like QAnon. Well, in the way that they operationalize and, and instrumentalize children as well, right? The original Satanic mm. Panic was so compelling beyond Christian forums and communities because we get this appeal to believe the children and save the children. And we're seeing similar rhetoric deployed now, really, again, all over the political spectrum because you have Q folks teaming up with organizations like uh, Operation Underground Railroad, glomming on to popular liberal causes like anti-sex trafficking, which don't necessarily talk to sex workers, understand how sex work, wa- sex work works. And you've got folks like, seriously, Ashton Kutcher putting millions of dollars behind anti-trafficking legislation and operations that ultimately harm sex workers, don't save trafficked children, and feed into this kind of millennial uh, sexual depravity, we need to get in there and, and save the kids thing. So you get nice white ladies who don't necessarily think of themselves as religious or as conspiracy theorists showing up for anti-trafficking events, not knowing that they're being organized by Q. And by the end, they're shouting like, where we go one, we we go all. It's it's truly bizarre. I was talking to some folks who work on Mormon fundamentalism on Twitter, and uh, Christina Rossetti was saying that she was so confused to see some of the same uh, rhetoric around child trafficking and cue whether or not they recognized it show up on like conservative Mormon uh, Facebook pages and Mormon fundamentalism. Mormon fundamentalist Facebook pages. So you've got folks all over a religious spectrum and all over a political spectrum glomming onto this, I think, largely in part because it's hard to argue against we want to protect and save children, even while we as a society are massively failing children. We know that sexual abuse of children is rampant. It is an epidemic that we are not addressing, but we sure are turning out in droves to yell about imaginary conspiracies and children being trafficked through the basement of a pizza place in DC. Right. Where the, the same crowds though are not gathering to protest the Catholic church, which Mm -mm. has been indicted, you know, hundreds of times now. Yes. Um, As well it should. Yes, absolutely. And the, the, the claim to be seeking to protect the children, there have been no children saved. There's been no trafficking uncovered. There's it's, it has failed as you say, Mm. utterly to do this. Well, and I mean, this is this is indicative of a larger problem about the way that we think about cults, right? We focus on these minority or these marginalized groups. We assume that they are putting children at risk because they do religion differently or they do sex differently. I'm thinking here specifically of Mormon fundamentalists. And the uh, 
practice of doing sex differently becomes evidence for abuse. So these folks practice polygamy. Let's send in tanks and take away all their kids is a thing that happened in 2008 in Texas. But at the same time, David, as you raise, we are not sending tanks. We are not sending armed SWAT teams into the parish parking lots of your local Catholic church, despite the fact that we have evidence of massive and institutionalized child abuse for decades, if not centuries. And concerted efforts to cover it up. Precisely so. Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Jonathan, were you want to say something? Oh, no, I was going to say, um, because you brought up the Catholic Church, there was a Q-related uh, protest here in Ireland, Dublin, a few days ago. Um, and despite the critical role that the abuse scandals in the Catholic Church have played within um, Irish public discourse over the last sort of, three decades, um, that wasn't a feature at all of the Q protest. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um they they seemed very unconcerned with that and more concerned with uh like nebulous conspiracies around particularly like gay uh members of the Irish parliament. Um <laughs> Well, it's just it's so staggering because again like it's it's not as though there is not evidence of child trafficking directly tied to the Trump administration. But we're going to assume, we here being Q members or adherents or however you want to think of them, that he is in some way uh, using the deep state to combat child trafficking while he's saying that Ghislaine Maxwell, you know, he wishes her well. I, it's, uh, it's just utterly baffling. Yep. And um, likewise with the royal family here as well. Mm. There's not, not a lot of press outrage about that one, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, I wanted to pick up on something, uh, another aspect of how I think um, a religious studies perspective can be quite enlightening here. <laughs> so no, no pun intended. Mm. Um, it's uh, this idea of belief. Mm. So um, we're talking about demonstrations where people with very different and sometimes incompatible religious and political positions are gathering together to protest you know particular I'll call it an I'll call it particular issues for want of a better way of saying it um and when these are reported by the particularly left uh, wing press in the US who are very angry about the idea of Trump full stop the these are presented as baying crowds of Q people. Mm. They're all they've all gone down the rabbit hole and they all completely believe in, you know, Q and on. But of course we know that belief is much more complicated than that. Um and the whether you ask these people, you know, are you do you believe such and such? Do you believe in Q? Do you think that you know the whole narrative that we've built about what Q is? I I doubt that we'd find that many or I think the majority would probably be a little bit more um, reluctant to go all in, shall we say? Mm. I mean, ultimately, I don't know that it matters so much. I think the focus on belief is, it's a Christian instinct and it, it lingers in the academy, but ultimately I care less about whether or not they've fully bought into Q than whether they're showing up in the streets without masks, breathing on each other, and insisting that we save the children in ways that make lawmakers and celebrities pay attention to them, and then 
act in ways that don't save any children, but do actively harm sex, wor- sex workers and minority religions. All right. No, I agree with you. I don't, I don't, it, it's not an issue of caring, I think, it, but it maybe suggests that the issue here is this underlying belief of of secret crowds of the other who are trying to abduct and molest our children, which is something that has a long, long history going at least back to the 80s and pro- probably much longer than that if we take in, you know, the anti-Semitic mm. stuff or the war. Whereas if we look at Q itself, we see this terribly novel thing that's, you know... Uh, it's all about politics and it's about people who think that Trump is up to, you know, the 4D chess. But if we actually stop and go, well, are they, do they all believe this? Or actually, is it much more about this other idea of, of a, you know, a a religious uh, sexual threat much more vaguely, but much more widespread than I think it starts to be a little bit more explicable perhaps. Yeah. We love to blame other people for sex abuse because it makes it not our fault. That's, I mean, this is this is the argument of my book, honestly, is that we yeah. like to find excuses for sex abuse that aren't more powerful people take advantage of less powerful people, including women and children. So if sex abuse is a thing that's done by like a cabal in the basement of a pizza place, it's not our fault, as opposed to like, statistically, we know most kids are likely to be harmed by members of their own family or folks that are known to their families and communities, right? That is our fault. That's on us. That's harder. That's scarier. Sorry, Savannah. Yeah, please. Oh, no, that's okay. I think I was just going to say that part of what makes Q so successful, uh, going back to uh, David's idea about uh, how belief plays into this, I think part of what makes Q so successful is that it is so vague in terms of there is no real centralizing structure. Not all adherents believe that Q is a... You know, they don't all agree about Q's identity. They don't all agree about, you know, the different issues. There are so many nebulous things that Q has come to encompass for people um, where it does kind of become, as Jonathan was describing earlier, that just just spiritual warfare, uh, you know, good against evil. And, you know, most people experience something like that uh, at some point where they have causes where, you know, they feel that they can go out. Uh, as Megan was just saying, and and fight against evil and and blame someone else uh, for the evils that have been going on within our culture, um, because it's far easier to blame others than it is to blame ourselves. But I think that um, that yes, Q's success has a lot to do with the fact that it it doesn't have a centralized you know belief system. It doesn't. You know, it's not belief that brings these people together. There's some kind of broader. Um, you know, perhaps faith in Trump or perhaps uh, disillusionment with the establishment. There's something it's not it's not quite belief, I think, that makes Q uh, a coherent group, if you can even begin to call it that. Well, and there's a cognitive dissonance element there as well, right? The harder that folks outside the community push back against this, the more it reinforces that this is important and that uh, you on the inside of the community are the ones that are really understanding what's going on. We see this with conspiracy theories all the time, which I'm sure David can speak to better than I can. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the reinforcement of uh, of group identity. And, and I think the increasing narrative of um, individualism um, in the latter half of the 20th century is fed into that, you know, that there's an encouragement to 
do your own research and think for yourself, which uh, adds to this idea of, well, if, if, um, if I'm getting this much resistance, I must be onto something. (laughs) Precisely. Well, and also all of the information that you have access to is not of equal credibility, but again, the questioning of credibility fades into this. Who's, who's really telling the truth, who really has access to this. Right. Well, I I mean, this is a, this is a much bigger conversation. We probably shouldn't get into it, but the, (laughs) the, um, we've, we've probably got 10 minutes left. Um, but the, yeah, the, we're seeing the broader public discourse catch up with the sort of critical theory of what was, you know, the the avant-garde of of academia in the 40s and 50s is now mainstream. But the problem is that many of the people don't have the critical skills to uh, to tell good information from bad information because um, because education is not as good as it should be. But uh, yeah, we'll come back to that another day. What mm. I want to do just now is um, is uh, talk a little bit more about the the way that language about religion is playing into the current political discourse. I think it's very interesting. You, If you read an article on Q from either side, you'll see the opposite side being derided for being um, a religion or a cult or the one... The one that's recently appeared, which I'm seeing a lot, is death cult, mm-hmm. which I think is the next level up from being a cult. Um, so what's happening here? What does this tell us about the way that, that people are, are using the language of religion? Jonathan, can we, well, let's start with you because you, um, you haven't had a chance yet. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm guessing Megan has a lot of feelings about the use of the word One of the things I found really interesting about the discourse is the way that religion, the way that the language around religion serves various degrees of of othering to a certain extent. Um, For example, references to Q as a new religion, for example, tends to operate to distance itself from a form of American religion that is heavily white and heavily Christian. Mm. Uh, it essentially says like the Q, Q is not something that has emerged from uh, pre-existing religious and political frameworks in America. It is it is it is quintessentially different. Um, on the other hand, you have people kind of going further and using the cult language around it to be like, no, it's not a religion; it's a cult um, or a death cult, even. And the, basically the way that the, this language tends to operate to present Q as something very unique and very new um, in a way that exculpates um, us or like normative society in America um, from any form of kind of culpability in the underlying frameworks that have caused it to come about in some way. Mm. It protects Christianity, certainly. Yeah. Um, it allows you to avoid the uncomfortable connections with, uh, you know, the evangelicals. Yeah. Well, and very specifically, white supremacist Christianity, which is way more mainstream than we like to think that it is. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting because even in articles that address the evangelical undertones or overtones and the intersection, we'll still try and depict Q as something quintessentially different. Um, in a lot of ways. And I find that very telling. Mm. Savannah? Sure. Um, I 
I, I think it's very interesting because it depends on who you are speaking to, what kind of uh, like as you talk to different adherents, uh, they all have a different perspective as to whether, um, you know, Q is is a cult, a conspiracy theory, a religion. Um, and I just I think it's it it does show how, you know, I mean, as we've already as we've already made clear, you know, that these terms like cult and conspiracy, they're often used to um, delegitimize uh, certain groups. And then when you see people talking about it instead as a religion, it's used, you know, in a sense to uh, legitimize while also disting- distancing itself, as uh, Megan and Jonathan were saying, from uh, mainstream Christianity. So it's it's kind of like religion, but it's not really like religion. Um, and mm-hmm. it's very it's been very interesting for me to see different news uh, casters and reporters, and especially scholars from other fields, trying to grapple with how to uh, classify Q because it doesn't really seem to fit. Um, as mm-hmm. I said before there's no there's no like uh, consistent unifying belief system or structure or disciplinary you know nothing that we're familiar with in terms of mainstream religion um so you know i think i think for me my interest is in the way that the, the way that different groups of people are struggling to try to define this movement um and and it it does show um kind of what our interests are, uh, whoever's doing the classifying, what their interests are. Mm. Yeah. I saw the term quasi-religion pop up again, which I hadn't seen for many a year. Um, but it was, it, it was interesting what you said there, Savannah, that it's, it's, it's scholars from other fields largely who are being asked to do this defining or are taking it upon themselves to do the defining. Yeah. Um, as as usual we're not being asked about it right exactly (laughs) how much i yell on twitter it's so strange that's actually not fair i i have talked to a number of folks um number of journalists i should say who want because i am semi-infamous for yelling about cults on twitter to talk to me about whether or not this is a cult and why they can call it a cult and almost Every time what happens is I spend 45 minutes explaining why I don't think this term works, why I think it's damaging, and the piece will come out and inevitably uses cult language. And then I got an email from the journalist explaining why they are actually correct to use the term, even though I told them that they were wrong. So, Well, that's that's slightly more polite than the ones I've done where they just uh, ignore me. Um, and, you know, I might get one line in it somewhere. No. I mean, the, I, I think the short critique, uh, I have a longer critique of cult as a term and as a political tool on my own podcast. So check out Keeping It 101 if you're curious about that. But the the really short Nicely version, done. thank you, <laughs> little plug there. Uh, the short version, uh, let's look at it from three prongs. One, the speaking of it as a cult absolves members, participants of responsibility for their actions because cult carries with it this connotation of brainwashing, right? So they've been tricked or forced into acting in this way. Oh no, they watch too much Fox News and now they've been programmed. And what you have are adult people making choices to consume false information and act on it. So that's dangerous. Two, the use of the word cult invites state surveillance and state intervention particularly against marginal and minoritized groups. And then three, largely speaking, the the cult v. religion distinction that you brought up, Jonathan, is really important because what it does is let folks who are not specialists in religion 
say, okay, well, some kinds of religion are acceptable and some kinds are not, but ultimately any religion that gets too different or too out there is dangerous. So we should be scared of religion across the board. This is something we should regulate. This is something that we need to control. And honestly, if you buy into religion at all, you're kind of stupid. This the crack hour slide, right? Like all religion is inherently irrational. So it becomes a way for folks who think of themselves as liberal, liberal or progressive, ultimately to critique religious folks as being just not as smart, not as uh, politically savvy as the rest of us. And I mean, demographically, we know the folks that are most likely to be religious, at least in the United States, are women, are people of color, and are poor. So it winds up being this racist, sexist, classic critique without taking responsibility for being biased against women, poor people, people of color, queers, etc. But it also maps onto the left-right paradigm because you've got, um, you know, the left, it's largely anti-Trump people who are presenting it as a as a as a religion mm. um whereas cult language tends to come more from from the right because uh, i mean the more, atlantic more used it are, so yeah 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 um i've seen a few actually um but yeah i think the the other the other thing that's going on though as well is in presenting it as a religion is prior to that you had several years of this discourse about whether trump was a real christian and i'm doing the quote marks of course um so there's there's a whole language about the job that religion is doing um and whereas you know as you said cult has these certain connotations one of the connotations is that it's you know there's a bad man who's the leader who brainwashed mm. them all. Yes. Um, so it, it repeats the cult of personality and, and reminds us again how much of this um, is being amplified by the people who are writing about Q being very unhappy about the existence of Donald Trump as president. Yeah. Well, and the suggestion that any of this is new or unique to Trump is just, again, lacking in the, the historical context for American religions. I have been saying all along that it's dangerous to call them a cult because, again, it suggests that they're new and unconnected to the history of American religion, where honestly, if you look at it, they are a logical, if absurd, conclusion of what the new Christian right was pushing as early as the 1970s. Sexual deviance, we are destroying America. Only folks who are truly committed to a very specific kind of morality that looks an awful lot like conservative evangelical slash Catholic sexual morality are truly American. Jonathan, any last thoughts? Uh, yeah, I kind of wanted to touch on the the Trump centricity of a lot of mm. the, the discourse around it and the way that um, both QAnon and the discourse about QAnon um, by critics both tend to feed into the narrative that's been very prominent since Trump's kind of rise, that Trump is an anomaly, um, mm. that he is outside the system, that he is not in some sense an outgrowth of logical trends either on the right or on in American politics broadly. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, both the way that the kind of the critiques, of, the critics of QAnon and QAnon itself kind of rely on that that notion of Trump as, as the outsider, as the, the thing that is not a product of a system, but is fundamentally a kind of break with the status quo, whereas yeah. he's not in a lot of ways. <laughs> no, he's Andrew Jackson 2.0. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, There's nothing right. new about this. Yeah, so I just wanted to I think point that out. 
Yeah, it's, it's absolutely worth pointing out. And I think we've come back to a nice uh, point to end on, which is this note of all of this makes a lot more sense if you have a background in religious studies. So hmm. go, <laughs> go take religious studies. Take a class. Take, take Religion 101, and if you can't go to a real class, then there's a podcast for that. There is. Um, other than that, though, I'm just going to wrap up by saying thank you to Jonathan, Savannah, and Megan for joining us today for this hastily organized but highly topical discussion, and I thank you all. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>